Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. What would Martin Luther King say? It is our annual exercise. On this weekend devoted to the memory and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., preachers of all faiths are drafting and delivering sermons, recruiting King's past words towards making a present day case about an issue or a cause. What would King say about the migrant crisis? What would King say about DEI? What would King say about Claudine Gay? What would he say about yesterday's military action in the Gulf? As a posthumous prophet of America's moral discourse, King's rhetoric has taken on the status of sacred scripture. And if the devil can quote scripture for his purpose, then all the more so any muddling minister will try to leverage King's oratory towards making this or that point. It's a rhetorical tactic as predictable as it is fraught with peril. King knew nothing of carbon emissions or the Me Too movement or the Houthis. King's era was not ours. And for that matter, not every era of King's life was one and the same. What King said or did about civil rights, economic justice, or war evolved over the course of his all-too-brief ministry. What would King say about Israel as we know it today? About the present war between Israel and Hamas? What would he counsel about the role of the United States in this conflict? about contemporary black-Jewish relations or the relationship between Jews and the progressive community? The short answer, the honest answer, is we have absolutely no idea. And yet, like a moth to the flame, I cannot help myself. (laughs) Fools rush in, wrote Alexander Pope, where angels fear to tread. The calendrical coincidence of our memorial weekend, world events, and our Exodus Torah reading, too good to avoid. A sermonic gravitational pull more powerful than even a Michigan national championship. (laughs) Israel sits on the docket of world court and the court of public opinion a case brought to the ICJ by way of South Africa. October 7th has given rise to a daunting alliance between Palestinians, progressives, and people of color against Israel, in some cases against Jews. 
The Jewish community has responded to this animus and anti-Semitism by circling its wagons, a spasm of political and philanthropic activism from within the Jewish community against DEI and other progressive efforts that are historically, and some might say ironically, championed by the Jewish community. Not just the trauma of October 7th itself and the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, but identity politics within and surrounding the Jewish community, the ground is shifting from beneath us. We need to start somewhere. We need something to hold on to. And King's legacy is as good a place as any to begin the conversation. So given we have no idea what King would say, let's begin with what he actually did say. The foremost scholar on the question of King's writings on Israel and the Jews is Martin Kramer, who wrote, quote, King supported Israel's right to exist and said so repeatedly. King's belief in Israel's right to exist was so steadfast that even Israel's detractors like the late Edward Said grudgingly acknowledged that King was a, quote, tremendous Zionist. In King's own words, Israel's right to exist as a state in security is incontestable. Israel's security was paramount to King. On March 25, 1968, at the Conservative Movement's annual Rabbinical Assembly Conference, King said, quote, peace for Israel means security, and we must stand with all of our might to protect its right to exist and its territorial integrity. I see Israel, said King to the assembled rabbis, as one of the great outposts of democracy in the world. King delivered these words just weeks before his assassination and significantly in the wake of the 67 Six-Day War. The fact that King offered such supportive words in front of a group of rabbis is unsurprising. The fact that he went on to affirm the need for Arab economic security in that same speech is just as, if not more significant in his moment and in ours. Peace for the Arabs, King stated, means the kind of economic security that they so desperately need. I think, he said to the rabbis, as long as these conditions, hunger, disease, illiteracy exist, there will be an endless quest to find scapegoats. So there is a need for a Marshall Plan for the Middle East where we lift those who are at the bottom of the economic ladder and bring them into the mainstay of economic activity. Be it the SCLC or the Middle East, King understood the relationship between hope, access, and opportunity and scapegoating extremism and violence. What would King have said about Palestinian extremism given his adherence to nonviolent principles of civil disobedience? I would like to think that he would be horrified. That said, 50 years after Israel's occupation of the West Bank and the rise of Jewish extremism, I don't think he would be so surprised. King once said that something to the effect that the measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort, but where they stand at times of controversy. By extension, more significant than what King said about Israel to a bunch of rabbis 
is what he said when it wasn't expedient to say it. Kramer explores one such exchange in 1967, significant for our own moment, when King visited black students at Harvard for an exchange of views when one of the young men present made a comment against Zionists. King snapped at the young man and said, don't talk like that. When people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism. So leaving aside the question as to where King's sympathies would lie vis-a-vis Israel 50 plus years since 67, it strikes me that King would have worked assiduously to distinguish between criticism of Israeli policy and anti-Semitism. Throughout his life, King was surrounded by Jewish friends and advisors, Stanley Levison, Harry Wachtel, and most famously, rabbis like Abraham Joshua Heschel, who walked with him in Selma, and Joaquin Prince, who preceded his I Have a Dream speech. In a 1964 SLCC newsletter, King wrote of his pledge to do his utmost to uphold the fair name of the Jews. Not only, he explained, because we need their friendship, and surely we do, but mainly because bigotry in any form is an affront to us all. It's not all rainbows and ponies, and we're gonna get to the other side in a moment. King canceled a 67 trip to Israel for fear it would signal a tacit endorsement of Israel's occupation of the West Bank. But King held a warmth to the Jewish people that was pragmatic, personal and principled, and he was careful to separate that warmth from whatever the policies of the Israeli government may have been. What would King say about today's blurred line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? I would like to think that he would hold that while people of good conscience may differ on Middle East policy, he would ask that the bigotry of anti-Semitism have no place, no quarter, no haven, and no home in the community of color or any community. King famously once reflected, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. As a friend to the Jewish people, I would like to think that King would not be silent in the face of anti-Semitism from progressive communities of color. If the subject of what King would say about Israel or the Jews is not a big enough topic, then all the more so the limitations of our time and my competency regarding a full exploration of black Jewish relations. We know from King's speeches and today's Torah reading that the two communities, Jews and blacks, share a common origin story a story of bondage and liberation that at one point linked not just blacks and Jews, but the black community and Zionism. As early as 1919, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, the African movement means to us what the Zionist movement must mean to the Jews. Both communities had our common struggles against oppression, against the white knights of the Klan, we both had our freedom fighters, centrists, and extremists. We shared, at least scripturally, a struggle for liberation. But post-war and into the 60s, it was a linkage that proved more tenuous and less sustainable. 
Yes, rabbis like Heschel, Prince, Jacob Rothschild, and countless others directed their energies towards civil rights, and in some cases, as with Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, their lives. But not all Jews were aligned with civil rights. To mention but one example of many studied by Professor Cheryl Greenberg, the author of this book on the subject, the Southern Jewish rank and file, many of whom belonged to the merchant class, were reluctant to get involved in the sit-in movement. Long before Black Lives Matter, the fault lines were there for all to see as a Jewish community became and became perceived less as natural allies to the black community, but white folk. It's a state of affairs given most famous expression in a 1967 New York Times essay by James Baldwin, who wrote, quote, the most ironical thing about Negro anti-Semitism is that the Negro is really condemning the Jew for having become an American white man. He is singled out by Negroes not because he acts differently from other white men, but because he doesn't. The black community became aligned with the Palestinian cause, embracing a Soviet Arab Afro-Caribbean narrative of anti-colonial nationalism leading to what we would know now as intersectionality. No longer allies, no longer able to tuck the Palestinian-Israeli conflict under the rug, the hearts of our communities became hardened, a cycle of fear, finger-pointing, and occasional violent eruptions made all the more toxic by way of the ramified effects of a world drunk on social media. The politics of both communities turned inward. Intersectionality, DEI, Black Lives Matter, Kanye, Kyrie, cultural appropriation, these are all the symptoms of a deeper condition of alienation and distrust. There are those in the Jewish community who say that they are shocked by the betrayal of the black community to the attacks of October 7th. Disappointed and saddened? Okay. Horrified by the events of October 7th and victim-blaming Israel? Absolutely. But anyone with any grasp of the shabby conditions of black Jewish relations prior to October 7th should not be surprised at all by what has taken place since. Our moment is a sober one. Sober, sad, and depressing for Israel, for American Jews, and for American Jews and our once allies, and American Jews and our would-be allies. We can hold up the picture of Heschel and King marching in Selma for inspiration, but not without a bitter recognition of knowing how far things have fallen. The choice, as always, is how we respond. Shall we continue with the she said, he said, declare every option exhausted and turn inward, circling the wagons even tighter? Or shall we do just the opposite, reaching out, not knowing if and how we will be received, make an effort towards rehabilitating the black Jewish relationship, hoping that even if we don't agree on this or that policy, we can at least agree on our shared humanity and the equal and infinite dignity by which we are all created in the image of the divine. I don't know what you will do, but to end where I began, I dare say I think I know what King would have done. 
King may not have visited Israel in 67, but in that final famous mountaintop speech, he does mention when he visited Israel, or Jerusalem rather, in 59. He describes a time when he and his wife visited and rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he notes, as many in this room know, what a winding and meandering road that is, dangerous both in its curves, in its descent, and its vulnerability to harm. Probably for that reason, King says, it was the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that served as a setting for his tradition story of the Good Samaritan. In the very place where one is most exposed, where one fears most for one's own safety, where the road ahead is most unclear and where one is most disinclined to reach out a hand. It is in that place that one should reach out, where one should inquire into the condition of the other and where one must build a bridge with a stranger. The road upon which we travel is a perilous one, but I believe it can be traversed if and only if we endeavor to do so with others. Understandable as it may be to only seek common cause with like-minded friends, it is far more courageous to do so with those with whom our alliances are not where they should be, nor where they could be. In this dark time, on this windy road, on this weekend given over to honoring the memory of the most courageous bridge builder of all, Martin Luther King Jr., we can honor his legacy by reaching beyond ourselves and the parochial boundaries of our community. We may not get there, but that didn't stop Moses from trying, and it didn't stop King from trying, and it shouldn't stop us from trying. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah.